What do the Civil Rights Movement, the Bill of Rights, and sociology have in common? More than you know. Let's talk about it in today's episode of the Sprangtacular podcast. Because if we look at these three different disciplines, I think it's going to give us a lot of insight into what is going on in our society today and help us reasonably predict what's coming tomorrow. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Springtacular Podcast. Uh, we're living in some interesting times right now. We're going on two months of a national shutdown. Uh, recently, we found out that 14.7% of the United States is unemployed. Just two months ago, unemployment was at a record low, at under 3%. We had nearly full employment. And today, there are over 20 million people who filed for unemployment in just April alone. This has been a massive social change. And in our sociology class, we've been looking at social change. We've been looking at collectivity and how societies uh, make these major shifts from the way they used to be to the way that they are. And what we're seeing today as a social change is a, a real shifting in the relationship between the citizens of America and their government. Pretty much for 200 years, the understanding of the relationship between America's citizens and their government uh, came from our Declaration of Independence, our founding document. And in that document, it says essentially that the United States was born or conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What that means is, is that unlike the 6,000 years of recorded human history prior, the rights that you have as a citizen, they don't come to you from uh, your family. They're not given to you because of the tribe that you're a part of, but rather they're your birthright as a human being. They're actually a part of your nature, and government doesn't give you rights. Government can only suppress your rights or protect them. And so out of that understanding of the relationship between the people and the government, this idea that government is only justified or just if they have the consent of the governed and if they use their power to secure the liberty of the citizens, that idea really began to expand in the world. And so you see our Constitution was created just a couple years after the Declaration of Independence was signed in 76. The Constitution was ratified uh, by 1791. And in that constitution, we set out as a people some very specific limitations to what governments, state, local, or federal governments can do. And everything the government does is supposed to protect and secure our rights. But today what we see is a increasing violation of the rights of citizens. You have government stay-at-home orders, which require businesses to shut down, require people to shelter in place. They've shut down schools. And all of this has been based upon the fear that the coronavirus is going to kill millions of people. And so nobody can really blame the leadership of the United States for reacting this way uh, just two months ago because it looked like almost two million people were going to die. And we got that number from a study done by a British scientist named Niall Ferguson. And since then, Niall Ferguson has adjusted his, his model, his statistical model, down from two million deaths in the United States to 60,000 deaths in the United States. And so one of the problems that we have is that we're making our decisions based upon information we're receiving from one slice or one segment of society, which is our medical community. And we need our medical community. I mean, who, who can say that it's not good to have medical experts who are studying 
this virus and, and giving us predictions for what's going to happen. But one of the problems with that is that people begin to argue over what the facts are. And so in sociology, one of the things that we've been studying is public opinion. And public opinion is really shaped by the information that the public gets. And whoever controls the information that you get on a particular topic can really control you, control what you think, what you believe about something. And so there's an important concept I want you all to know and learn through this podcast, and that's called the, the M, the M, as in Matt or monkey, the M. And in politics, the M is the acceptable middle of an issue. So imagine any issue, for example, let's say gun control. Okay, on one side you have an extreme, you have like 10% of the people, and they don't want any restrictions on guns at all. And on the other side you have an extreme, that's 10% of the people, and they want all guns confiscated by the government completely. And somewhere in the middle you have people who want to have the right to keep and bear arms, but they want reasonable regulation or limitation. And so the vast majority of the people in America are going to be in the middle. And so if you can move the middle, if you can convince the vast majority of the middle to move to one of the two extremes by giving them new information, then you can get the people who are in power to change the laws, to change the way they exercise their power. So for example, let's say that uh, it was found that, um, that guns, any gun of any kind, uh, causes death uh, from some sort of weird gun disease. Like as soon as you have a gun, as soon as you touch a gun, as soon as you look at a gun, uh, you die within 15 minutes. Now, if enough of the people in America believe that was true, you could see politicians really beginning to confiscate firearms around the country, right? Because everybody believes that these guns, just by looking at them, by touching them, are going to lead to your death in 15 minutes. Now, how would you get the middle to believe that? Well, the way you do that is by giving them information, showing them stat, uh, statistics or evidence or maybe some videos on YouTube of somebody looking at a gun and then they drop dead. And if enough people believe this information about guns, it begins to shift the middle to one of those two extremes. And so when it comes to our society, the way you shape public opinion is by controlling the information the public gets, by getting the public to think a particular way on the topic. And if you can move the middle, then you can control the debate. And if you control the debate, then you control the power of government to shape society. And so that's what we're seeing today is we're seeing a battle over the acceptable middle. What are the facts? What are the, what are the true statements about the COVID virus? Now, when we first started, we thought that, like I said, 2 million people were going to die. But very quickly, the government began to revise those numbers. In California, it looked like almost a million Californians could die. And so we locked down right away. But recently, in the last month, there has been a lot of studies that have been done by different medical groups, for example, Stanford Medical School, USC did a study, a study in Norway, a study in Germany, and more and more of these studies are finding that actually a large percentage of the people in the United States already have antibodies to the COVID virus, which means that they've already been exposed to it. Recently, a USC study that I'm going to link in the show notes, it says this in the study, it says, based on the testing results from 863 adults, the research team estimates approximately 4.1% of the county that they tested, and this county's adult population, has an antibody to the virus. Adjusting this estimate for the statistical margin of error implies about 2.8 to 5.6% of this county in California's adult population has antibodies to the virus. 
That translates to 221,000 Californians to 442,000 Californians who have already gotten the COVID virus and already have antibodies to it. They may have never even had a symptom. Now, this is important because that estimate, based on the scientific research done by USC, is 28 to 55 times higher than the 7,994 confirmed cases of COVID reported in that county at the time of the study in April. So what that means is, is that we are grossly misunderestimating how many people already have contracted the COVID virus and have already developed antibodies to it. And so the researchers said these estimates suggest that we might have to recalibrate disease prediction models and we should rethink our health strategy. And this is happening all over the country and all over the world. Governments are beginning to feel a lot of pressure as public opinion shifts and people become more and more informed about the actual data on the COVID numbers. And it looks like there are a lot more people who have been infected but have had no symptoms. That means they're asymptomatic. And it looks like this virus has probably been in America long before January or February of this year. And so as people begin to think, wait a minute, if way more people have already had this virus, then that means the actual death, death rate is far lower than we thought. It's actually less than 1%. Now, if you believe that, and if you can convince the majority of Californians to believe that, they're going to begin to put incredible pressure on the government to open up the state. Now, if you can convince people that's not true, and that those studies are false, and that these doctors are lying, and that they're working for some nefarious group, well, then you can keep California locked down because, after all, if we open up the state, then more people are going to die. That's the idea. Something else that's interesting about this debate, as we look at how public opinion is being shaped, and again, this is primarily a sociological term, public opinion, and in sociology, we've been studying this. What happens is, is you begin to create something like mass panic. Now, a panic is a spontaneous and uncoordinated group action to escape some perceived threat. And that's, that's what you want to call what's happened to our country in the last two years. We have panicked. We've shut down the economy. We've driven it into a ditch. Millions of people have lost their jobs. There are people who have gotten very, very sick. But those sicknesses and those particular cases turn out to be localized in a very specific set of places. For example, did you know that... Out of all the counties in the United, in United States, 50% of the counties in the United States do not have a single coronavirus death. Half of the counties in the United States don't have a single coronavirus death. And the vast majority of cases of coronavirus deaths are localized to three states, Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey. Those three states account for over half of all the coronavirus deaths. Something even more discouraging is recently we found out in a study in New York City that over half, 66% of the people who contracted coronavirus did so while they were sheltering in place. They were not essential workers. They didn't work in the medical field, and yet they came in and tested positive. And when they investigated these people's lives and what they've been doing, 66% of them have been sheltering in place. So two-thirds of the contractions have happened while sheltering in place. Now, these kinds of numbers, which are now coming in, are beginning to shift the M. That is the acceptable middle on this issue. And what people really think is going on as a nation. 
Something else that's interesting to watch is if you look back at what our government was trying to do, rightly, is they were trying to flatten the curve. And what that means is, is that everybody who's going to get coronavirus is going to get coronavirus. We're not going to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Whenever we open up the states and people go back to work and they go back to their lives, they're going to contract it at some point. And the total number of people who are likely to die from the coronavirus because they have a weak immune system or they're elderly or they're overweight or they're at risk, those numbers are probably going to be the same no matter what we do. But what we wanted to do is flatten the curve. And what that means is, is if all of a sudden millions of people contract the coronavirus and then they rush the hospitals to get treatment, they would overwhelm the medical system and it would destroy the medical system in the United States. So by sheltering in place, what we were doing was buying time, slowing down the spread so that fewer people came to the hospital each day. And that meant the hospitals could take care of these people. Now, it turns out that we have excess capacity. Hospitals around the country have plenty of room. In fact, in New York City, the federal government turned a concert hall into a gigantic hospital with over 2,000 beds, and New York never used it. The federal government sent a ship called the USS Mercy to New York City to provide them hospital beds for people who were going to be contracting COVID, and they never used it. In other words, our hospitals are doing fine. We have plenty of capacity, and we did. We flattened the curve. Fantastic. So now the question is, why are we not opening our country? Now, for this answer, it really comes down to what you believe the facts are. Many people are still afraid. They're still in panic mode. And there is something like a mass hysteria going on where people are freaking out and they don't know who to believe. Now, normally in a country like ours, when you have a situation like this where there's different opinions on what the, what the truth is about the matter, we look to experts. But our experts are divided. We look to our own personal experience. How many people do you know who have died of the coronavirus? How many people do you know who have contracted it and tested positive, but who are asymptomatic? That means they're not showing any signs of sickness. Most people that I speak to don't know anybody who's died. That doesn't mean that you don't know anybody who's died. And most people that I speak to who have actually tested positive for coronavirus really had no symptoms at all. And so what this does is this creates a major division in our country. There's a group that's really, really worried about opening. And there's a group that wants to get back to work. And this is leading to all sorts of political conflict. And that shifts us to our government lens. That was a sociological look at what's going on. We looked at how mass panic because of mass hysteria and oftentimes bad information can lead to a shifting of public opinion. And the shifting of public opinion is really creating a social change, a change in the relationship between the citizen and the government. Now I want to look more specifically at that change and what's going on when it comes to the relationship between the government, both state, local, and federal, and the citizens of the United States. Because what we're seeing happening all around the country is that the fundamental relationship between our government and the citizen is shifting. And many people don't realize it. So I want to talk about that next. Hey, sociology students, that segment was primarily dedicated to you. And in that segment, I used a lot of the key terminology that you've been learning in our class, like public opinion, propaganda, panic, mass hysteria. What I'd like you to do is I would like you to find some examples. I'd like you to find articles or video online of each one of those things. And I want you to send that to me 
as a separate assignment. I want you to find me an example today in our society of what you would consider mass hysteria. And again, you'll find the definitions for mass hysteria and all of these key terms in chapter 17. Find an example of what you consider to be mass hysteria related to the COVID crisis. Find an example of panic that shouldn't be hard to find. Also, find an example in today of public opinion on the issue. What do you think the M is? Where do you think the acceptable middle is? Where do you think the majority of people are when it comes to the question of whether or not we should open up or stay shut down in this COVID crisis? Okay, what, what's, the, what's the public opinion on this issue in your opinion? So I'd like you to answer those three questions in a Word document, and you can either link an article that illustrates your answer or a video that illustrates your answer. And I want you to send that to me, not this Monday coming up, which would be, what would that be? Uh, let's see, today is the 8th, so that would be uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, not the 11th, May 11th, but I want you to send it to me on Friday, okay? And send me a document that, that gives me what you think the answer is to those questions. All right. Now, what we see happening today is a real fundamental transformation in the relationship between government and citizen. Again, in our country, we the people are sovereign. And what that means is if you think of a king, that king in ancient medieval times was sovereign. That means he had all power and authority. Any rights that you had were given to you by the king. He could give them and he could take them away. He was in charge. He was the ruler. He had all power. Well, in the United States, we did something radical in 1776. We completely repealed or completely got rid of that old system of government. We, we in America, we believe that the people are sovereign, that all authority and power comes from the people, and that whatever the government does, it can only do if the people give them permission. Now, how do you know if the people have given the government the permission they need to do certain things? Well, the answer is you look at the Constitution, the federal Constitution, the state constitutions. They tell you what power the people of the United States, who are sovereign, who are the kings and queens of the land, what power they have given their government to exercise. Now, if you work in the government, you are a civil servant. That means you work for the people. You are their employee. And you have been given power for one purpose, to protect their liberty. That's the whole point of government. If you don't have a government, you have anarchy and you're not safe. You have to stay close to your house because mobs may come by and rob you of your property. You can't go far. You don't have a lot of freedom because in order to protect your freedom, you have to constantly keep and bear arms and defend yourself and form mobs of your own. But in a civil society like ours, we give up a limited amount of our freedom in order to give government power so that they can protect the rest of our freedom. If you imagine uh, your freedom is like a cup of coffee and your coffee cup is filled to the top and you have a classroom of 37 students and each of them have a cup of coffee filled to the top and you have a teacher who sits at the front of the classroom and that teacher has a huge coffee cup that's empty. Each student comes by and they take a dropper, they fill it up with coffee and they drip that drop or they drip the, the contents of that dropper into the teacher's cup. Now, if any one student fills a dropper of coffee uh, up, it's not gonna be a lot. There's still gonna be a lot of coffee left in that cup. And that's like what we're doing. We're giving a little bit of our liberty to the government, a little bit of our power to the government, but we still retain the majority of our freedom and our rights. But if you added up every single student's dropper full of coffee, well, the teacher's cup would be pretty big and the teacher would have a lot of power. 
And so that's kind of a, a metaphor for what we're doing in our society. Each of us give up a limited amount of our freedom or say over our lives, right? We have to abide by the speed limit. We have to wear clothing. We submit to laws. As long as those laws are consistent with the constitutions of the states and the federal government, the limits of power that we've given them, and as long as those laws are just laws. And that means those are laws that are consistent with the personal or the, the principled reason why America exists, to protect liberty. So if the government does something to take away your freedoms, if a government does something to suppress your rights, they have to have a very clear reason. And those reasons have to be constrained by law. That means the legislature of the states or the legislature at the federal level has to pass a law that says the executive branch, the president, the governor, the police department, they can take away your freedoms in this specific way and no other way. Now, we as Americans, we submit to this government because we elect our officials. We choose congressmen and senators. We send them to office every two, four, and six years. And if we don't like what they're doing and we don't like their laws, we pull them out of office. But even majorities, even if the majority of Americans want to go in a particular direction, even majorities are limited in the United States. Majorities in the United States have to abide by and submit their majority will to the Constitution. And we specifically limit majorities in the Bill of Rights. There are certain things that even majorities of Americans can't do because we have forbidden them in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. And so we call them the Bill of Rights, right? We have amendments to our Constitution that limit the power of government. And so what's happened in our society over the last 240 years is we have created the freest, most prosperous society in history, primarily because the government does very limited things, the things that the government does is primarily focused on protecting our life, liberty, and property. And all the rest of our life is free for us to rule and govern and do as we see fit. Whatever pursuing our happiness means for us, we get to do that. That's the basic idea of the United States. We have a limited constitutional republic. Now, unfortunately today, because of this COVID crisis and because of the quick reactions of state, local, and federal governments, we have seen a massive suppression of the fundamental civil liberties of the American people, our rights. Our rights have been suppressed. They have been uh, stopped from being exercised. And we see it all across the United States. For example, the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And there you have a very clear, absolute prohibition. No state, local, or federal government can write any law that stops you from the free exercise of your religious faith. Whether you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or a Sikh or a Buddhist or a Jain or whatever you are, if you want to express yourself religiously, you have the right to do that. And Congress is forbidden from writing any law or taking any action that would stop you from expressing your religious faith beliefs. Now, unfortunately, today what we're seeing in America is that churches and mosques and synagogues have been closed. States and local powers have essentially said that you cannot worship together. You can't congregate together. You can't worship your God in the same room. It's completely forbidden. In fact, in some states, they've actually arrested people, pastors and parishioners, for going to something called drive-in church. 
And so we saw this recently across the United States where churches for Easter did drive-in services. And what that meant was people would get in their car, they made sure their cars were at a good distance from one another, their windows were rolled up, and they would drive up to the, the, the parking lot of the church and somehow the religious leader would, would speak to them either through a microphone or through the radio. And in several states, there were cops there that were actually ticketing and arresting people who were doing this. Now, this is at odds with the First Amendment. Now, it, asks, it begs the question, is this constitutional? Does the government have the right to suppress your, your rights, your liberties, in this global pandemic crisis? Well, the answer is no. There are only two specific cases in the Constitution where the federal government or state governments can take away your First Amendment right. And those are in times of war and rebellion. So if it's a rebellion from within, right, like the Civil War, then in that case, for a short period of time, in very prescribed ways, the government can take away your First Amendment right. But of course, those have to be passed by legislatures. In other words, your representatives have to go to the, the state house. They have to pass a law that says, we're giving the governor power to take away your First Amendment right in these prescribed situations. Because those elected officials who go to the state house are going to stand before you in two years. And they're going to have to give an account for the law that they passed. And so they're going to be very, very careful to make sure that they're only taking away your First Amendment right in a very reasonable circumstance. But unfortunately, today what we see in the United States is we have governors all across the country who are just simply repealing the First Amendment, but they don't have a legislature to back them. They're issuing executive orders. And so all across the United States, we're seeing cases that are now being filed in federal courts. And across the United States, we've seen several cases where judges have restored to citizens their constitutional rights, where they essentially have struck down governors who have been passing these, these executive orders that have been taking away people's rights. If you look at the show notes, I have a link to a whole list of, of cases that have been recently um, uh, submitted uh, to state and federal courts where citizens are suing to restore their rights. So this is a big question, which is in times of, of global pandemic, do we lose our First Amendment rights? Another example of the First Amendment rights that are being suppressed is freedom of speech. The First Amendment also says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition their government for a redress of grievance. In other words, as Americans, you have the freedom to assemble, to go where you want, to congregate with who you want, specifically because that allows you to speak out against the government. If the government is doing something wrong, you need to be able to protest. You need to be able to march, just like Martin Luther King did during the Civil Rights Movement. Now, for those of you in this uh, U.S. history class, you'll be familiar with this. The Civil Rights Movement took place between 1954 and 1968. And what kicked off the Civil Rights Movement was a case called Brown versus Board of Education. And in this case, the state of Kansas was suppressing the civil liberties of a young black girl named Brown. She was being made to walk across town, take a bus across town to the black school. She was an elementary school girl. And there was a white school right across the street that was an elementary school, but she couldn't go there because she was black. The, the law discriminated between black and white people. So she sued the school board of Topeka. It went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided in her favor. 
they restored her civil liberties. They said the state government doesn't have the authority to suppress the rights of American citizens to go to the schools they want to go to. That's not in the Constitution. The state of Kansas can't do that. And so once the Supreme Court said that segregation was unconstitutional, from 1954 to 1968, millions of black men and women began to challenge the unconstitutional laws, orders, and actions of state governments. State governments said that you couldn't sit in a white lunch counter if you were black. So these men and women sat in the white lunch counter. They were arrested. They were prosecuted. They were fined. In many cases, they were beaten and abused physically, but they took their court case to the Supreme Court and to state courts and to federal courts, and they won over and over again. And from 1954 to 1968, over that period of time, a time of about 14 years, the segregational laws, which were totally unconstitutional, which were taking away the rights of Southern black citizens, they were all struck down. And today in the South, you can't suppress the civil liberties of a black person based on their race. You can't do it. It's unconstitutional. Now, it's always been unconstitutional, but it took a long time for the people in the South to assert their rights. And that's what you're seeing happening today all across the United States, which is people are no longer willing to submit to these stay-at-home orders. A great example of this was a recent case where a Dallas salon owner, her name was, uh, her last name was Luther. And apparently this lady, Shelly Luther, she was uh, ordered like everybody else in Dallas to shut her business down. But she doesn't get a check from the government because she's a private contractor. She didn't get one of those $2,000 checks that maybe your parents got from the government. And she can't pay her mortgage. She's two months behind. She employs 18 salon stylists and none of them were working. She has to feed her family. And so she decided that she was going to open up her salon and she was going to allow customers to come in because it was basically poverty or violating the city ordinance. So she did. She opened up her, rest, her, her uh, salon and she had her customers wash their hands and wear masks and they were a certain distance apart. Well, the city of Dallas came in and they shut her down and they drug her before this judge. And the judge told her that she was selfish and that she was putting herself first and he demanded her to apologize. And if she didn't apologize to him, he would hold her in contempt of court. He would fine her $7,000 and he would put her in jail. Well, she refused to apologize. She said it wasn't selfish. She said she was a citizen of the United States, that she had rights under the Constitution to practice her business if she saw fit, and that customers had the right to come and patronize her business if they wanted to, that those rights were entitled to her under the Constitution, and she was not going to apologize for that. Well, the judge put her in jail for seven days. Well, this went national, and you may have seen this story. The, the state of Texas, their attorney general, personally said that he would serve her jail time. He volunteered to pay the $7,000 fine that she was levied. And finally, it went to the state Supreme Court. And this just happened a couple days ago. And the state Supreme Court of Texas struck down that judge's ruling. And not just struck it down. They really said some strong words to that judge. And they basically said, look, this woman, she can't have this happen to her. This is, this is not within the power of government. Now, why would a judge do that in the first place? I mean, I understand she violated city ordinance, but why didn't he just give her a $50 fine or a $100 fine? Why did he make her apologize to him and call her selfish? And the answer is, is because this judge is, is thinking the relationship between the citizens and the government is very different than the way the founding fathers thought it was. The founding fathers thought that the judges worked for the people. The judges existed to protect the people's rights. 
And this judge had a very different attitude. Here's another person who works in the government. This is the mayor of Chicago. Listen to what she said to the citizens of Chicago. Listen to this. Hold on one second. Let me turn on my speaker. That didn't really work well. Let's see. Uh, let me turn my speaker on. One second. This is the, the mayor of Chicago. Listen to what she said to her citizens. Jail. Period. There should be nothing unambiguous about that. Don't make us treat you like a criminal. But if you act like a criminal and you violate the law and you refuse to do what is necessary to save lives in the city in the middle of a pandemic, we will take you to jail, period. Now, that's very strong words. And it's all predicated on the idea that if they don't stay home, that they're going to cost lives. But again, if you actually look at what we've said, what the scientists said, nobody ever claimed that staying at home was going to stop the spread of the coronavirus eventually from getting to all the people in the country and developing herd immunity. What they said was, is if we don't shelter in place, we're not going to bend the curve. And if we don't bend the curve, we're going to have overrun hospitals. But we don't have overrun hospitals. It's two months later now. Our hospitals are great. And so as more Americans look at the situation, they're concluding on their own that it's time to open back up. And yet the mayor of Chicago is, is really threatening the citizens of Chicago. Now, I don't live in Chicago. But if I'm a citizen of Chicago and I hear my mayor talk to me like that, that makes me feel like maybe my mayor thinks that her job is a little different than maybe what the founding fathers thought. I don't know, maybe you think it's justified and okay, fine. But you see, this is a very different tone and a very different tenor. Something else that's interesting is that uh, I just talked about this in sociology, but we have a battle over what the, uh, the common understanding of where we are is. We have a, a, a fight or a struggle over the acceptable middle of this issue. There are a lot of people who want Americans to believe that we have to stay shut down for more months, that if we open up, millions of Americans are going to die. They believe it strongly, and they are, they are saying it's true, and they want to keep America closed. But there's another large group of Americans who feel like, no, we need to open up. The people who are at risk should stay home. They should not go out. But people's livelihoods, their businesses, their, their jobs, everything they've invested in their, in their work, it's at risk, and we need to let them go back to their lives. And so what we have is a battle over the truth, a battle over what the real facts are. And so one of the things that's interesting is one of the ways we communicate today is online. And social media, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, those are big places where public opinion is shaped. And so it's very important that people have the freedom to express themselves on social media and on YouTube. But unfortunately, what's happening is our major tech companies are beginning to censor and silence opinions that differ from what they think. So we have YouTube, for example, that recently silenced two doctors from Kern County who were reporting what they found in their studies about the COVID crisis. This video went viral. Five million people saw it. It was influencing the public debate. It was shifting the acceptable middle. And so YouTube silenced them. Facebook recently said that they would shut down any pages that tried to coordinate peaceful public protests at state capitals because the state governors had said citizens can't protest. Gavin Newsom did that. Gavin Newsom said that Californians cannot come to the Capitol and protest. But again, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and petition their government for a redress of grievance. So can Gavin Newsom repeal the First Amendment? Yes, he can. 
in times of war and in times of rebellion. Those two specific limitations were placed in the Constitution, not during times of a pandemic, and that's why never before in the history of the United States at any time when there's been a pandemic has the federal government or state government stopped people from protesting. And yet, that's exactly what YouTube and Facebook are doing. They're trying to suppress people from organizing and being able to express their political views to their elected officials. I have here a, um, an interesting uh, a story done by uh, Tucker Carlson. I want to play for you a part of it. And uh, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't endorse Tucker Carlson. I don't endorse Fox News. But I am interested in people who are discussing the First Amendment and our freedom of speech. So I'd like to play it for you. And I'm going to have for you guys uh, an assignment based on what this guy's saying afterwards. So take a listen. Pages of government statistics and then interpreted them in light of their own long clinical experience as doctors. At one point, they noted that the newly adjusted death rate in their state of California, which is much lower than anyone expected it to be, and they asked if government officials there should change their policies based on this new science. Watch. We've seen 1,227 deaths. Sorry, this is a doctor from uh, uh, Kern County who's been treating patients with COVID and who's been, him and his partner have been doing research on the outbreak, and he... Uh, did a news uh, a, a press a press briefing on local television with a full press corps there to ask him questions, him and the other doctor, and they were sharing their findings and their studies, and what they said uh, went viral. So anyway, that's, what, that's, what, that's who you're listening to right now. In the state of California, with a possible uh, incidence or prevalence of 4.7 million, that means you have a 0.03 chance of dying from COVID-19 in the state of California. 0.03 chance of dying from COVID in the state of California. Is that, does that necessitate sheltering in place? Does that necessitate shutting down medical systems? Does that necessitate people being out of work? So what you see here is he's asking a question. Does the science and the data support the action the government is taking? And that seems like a reasonable question. He may be wrong. His study may be wrong. But should he be free to express his medical opinion? Well, YouTube says no. Tucker Carlson goes on to say this. So whatever your view of the mass quarantines, and maybe you're enthusiastically for them, the questions you just heard are valid questions. In fact, they're critical questions. We should all be asking those questions, including and especially our policymakers. But as Dr. Erickson pointed out later in the video, dissent of any kind is no longer tolerated in this country. Fact-based honesty, which is the soul of science, is under attack, even in hospitals. Dr. Erickson described physicians being pressured to classify illnesses and deaths as related to coronavirus, whether they believe that to be true or not. We aren't pressured to test for flu, but ER doctors now, my friends and I talk to say, you know, it's interesting, when I'm, when I'm writing up my death report, I'm being pressured to add COVID. Why is that? Why are we being pressured to add COVID to maybe increase the numbers and make it look a little bit worse than it is? I think so. So what you just heard, what Dr. Erickson described, is called lying. And lying has no place in science ever. It's scary to think it takes place on a large scale in hospitals. He says it does. Viewers of Erickson's video were shocked and transfixed by this. They forwarded the video to friends who forwarded it on to their friends. And suddenly, millions of people who have spent the last six weeks on a diet of Tiger King and internet memes were watching sober-minded medical researchers reading from charts of statistics. It's hard to recall a science video taking off like this one did. Not everyone was impressed by it. Some criticized the doctor's policy conclusions. And of course, that's fair. Decent people have different opinions. We're not entirely certain what the perfect response to this pandemic is. Nobody is certain. There's no objective answer at the moment. At best, we can plot along with open minds and good faith. More informed debate is exactly what we need to make wise decisions going forward. Unfortunately for all of us, informed debate is exactly what the authorities don't want. They want unquestioned obedience, so they're cracking down on free expression. Last night, the doctor's video, the one you just saw, was pulled off of YouTube, the largest video hosting site in the world. It wasn't an accident. YouTube admitted doing it. The company cited a violation of, quote, community guidelines, and they did not apologize. Looking back when all of this is finally over, and it will be, it's likely we'll see this moment, what YouTube just did, as a turning point in the way we live in this country, a sharp break with 250 years of law and custom. The two doctors' video was produced by a local television channel in California. It was, in effect, a mainstream news story. 
The video was not pornographic, it didn't violate copyright or incite violence or commit libel, it didn't break any law. The only justification for taking it down was that the two physicians on screen had reached different conclusions from the people currently in charge. It was a form of dissent from orthodoxy. YouTube and its parent company, Google, have now officially banned dissent. The CEO of YouTube admitted that openly. But then we also talk about um, removing information that is problematic. You know, of course, anything that is medically unsubstantiated to so people saying, like, take vitamin C, um, you know, um, take turmeric, like, those are all, will cure you. Um, those are the examples of things that would be a violation of our policy. Um, anything that would go against World Health Organization recommendations would be a violation of our policy. And so remove is another really important part of our policy. So you're not just putting the truth next to the lie. You're taking the lie down. That's a pretty aggressive approach. Taking the lie down. So who gets to decide it's a lie? Uh, this is not a bunch of quacks who are telling us that there are Martians who came from Mars and gave us COVID. These are two medical doctors in Kern County currently practicing, saving lives, who are sharing with the public their findings and asking the question, does this new information that we're presenting into this public debate, does it necessitate us rethinking our response? Now, whether you think we should shut down or not is not the question. The question is, do people have the freedom of the United States to shape public opinion? Do people in the United States have the freedom to express their political views or to express medical views? In other words, are all voices allowed to have a say in this debate as to whether or not we should open or close the United States? Well, apparently YouTube has decided that anybody who says anything that could shift public opinion away from staying closed and towards opening up, those voices have to be silenced. And Facebook has done the same thing. It's terrifying. Listen to this. Removing, quote, anything that would go against World Health Organization. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who runs that statement, no doubt pleased to see it. Grossly mismanaging an entire state is a lot easier when citizens are not allowed to complain about it, and now they're not. Last week, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg explained that protests like these are no longer protected political speech. They're, quote, misinformation. How do you deal with the fact that Facebook is now being used to organize a lot of these protests to defy social distancing, defy the social distancing guidelines in states? Is somebody trying to organize something like that? Is that qualified as harmful information? We do classify that as harmful misinformation, and we take that down. Harmful misinformation. That is a phrase familiar to anyone who has watched totalitarian regimes in any country. Now, I don't really particularly think that Tucker Carlson's political views make a lot of sense in a lot of cases, but he does, he does seem to be very jealous for his First Amendment rights. And he is the only person I could find online who is really bringing attention to this First Amendment issue. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, he owns a private company. It's, it's publicly traded, but he, he, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a company. It's not run by the government. And YouTube is also publicly traded. It's owned by Google and Alphabet, ABC or whatever they call the Google Parent Corporation. And so they have the right to set the terms for their business. If you use YouTube and you use Facebook, you have to comply with their regulations. But the point is this. There is a large group of people in our, in our positions of power today, politicians, people in technology, who have a particular point of view on this issue. And what they're doing is they're making it impossible for people who have a different point of view to express themselves. Now, freedom of speech is essential for a free society. It allows for information to travel back and forth and for people to shape public opinion, which will eventually inform the leadership that make decisions that govern our lives. Whatever you think about the shutdown, it has cost us trillions of dollars. There are actual people that I know who haven't been able to get medical procedures that they need to live because they're seen as elective procedures and all of the hospital capacity was dedicated to COVID. Now, I'm sure some of you know the same thing. So this is a really challenging time. It's a, it's a scary time. But what we have to do as citizens is ask the question, do our civil liberties go away in a pandemic? If the answer is yes, what are the limitations upon executive power to take away our civil liberties? Is there, is there any situation in which we can say, no, you don't have the right to do this, even in a pandemic? 
This is the question that we all have to be asking. Again, these people in power, they're under a lot of stress. There's a lot of pressure. They're trying to do their very best. But one of the reasons why we have a constitution of the United States and one of the reasons why we have amendments in our constitution is so that when the passions of the day and the heat of the issue get really, really high, the cool, reasoned, deliberate judgments of, of, of wise deliberation, they actually cool the passions of the majority, of the mob. In other words, it's very easy to do something in the heat of passion and look back and regret it. Think about Korematsu, right? We learned about that in World War II. We locked up Japanese people and put them in internment camps. And at the time, people were like, yeah, it's necessary to keep us safe. But looking back, we're ashamed. We asked for forgiveness. We gave people money back. Think about what we did in the early 1900s. We forcibly sterilized thousands of Californians. And now we're paying them reparations for that. There's all sorts of stories in history, like the Civil Rights Movement, where people in the South were stripping the liberties away from entire communities of black people for 100 years. And whenever you would point out the injustice of it, they would say, yeah, but you see, it's keeping peace and social order, and it would be too disruptive if we, if we gave these people back their liberty. Well, we look back on that and we say that was a shame. We see Martin Luther King and people like himself who resisted Southern laws and stood up for their civil liberties as heroes. And so today, what we have in our society is we're really going through a crisis. And this crisis is happening on all sorts of levels. And it's dividing the United States in a big way. And so uh, what we want to do as we look to the future is consider what are the, the possible, uh, what are the possible you know, outcomes of this whole thing going forward? Like what, what could happen in the short term? Well, I think in the short term, here are some things that we'll probably see. We'll probably see more citizens who are refusing to submit to these laws, more businesses being opened, more churches being opened. I recently saw a, a Facebook post uh, from a megachurch pastor in Chino Hills named Jack Hibbs, who has informed his congregation that they're going to open up their church, even though the uh, governor of California has said they can't do that. There's another megachurch in Riverside that's doing the same thing. And so what they're doing is they're essentially saying, look, we have a First Amendment right. We're going to exercise it. And if you want to come in here and arrest us, go for it. Now, that's going to lead to a conflict. And who knows which, which direction that's going to go. You're going to see more businesses that open, uh, like this woman in, in Dallas, and also law enforcement. Uh, one of the things that I found online recently was law enforcement officials who are saying that they're no longer going to enforce these stay-at-home orders. Uh, some law enforcement officials in Huntington Beach recently said that on the news. Well, this is not good for our society. This is actually dividing us, and this is causing what's called civil disobedience. Now, sometimes you have to disobey laws that are unjust, but what you don't want is you don't want the government saying to do something and millions of people saying no. That just breeds disrespect for the law. What you want is you want the government to reflect the will of the people through their legislature. And so what I imagine will happen is legislatures will come back into session, hopefully soon, and they'll begin to write laws that seriously limit the power of governors and what they're doing to shut these states down. We're already seeing that happen across the United States. In states like Michigan and Wisconsin, state legislatures are actually suing governors of their state to open up the state because the governors have shut them down without the legislature's approval. And so there's going to be a fight over who has power and who has the final say. Something else that's going to happen is this is going to be a major issue in the 2020 election. I think in the 2020 election, you're going to see a lot of people running for office saying, we did the right thing, we kept you safe, and you should reward us with another term. And then you're going to have people running against them that are saying, these people have done the wrong thing, they overreacted, they took away your liberty, and if you elect us, we'll make sure this never happens again. I think those are some things we can reasonably predict. 
Something else that's going to happen is it's going to further divide the United States when it comes to authority of information. More and more Americans are getting into their tribes and their silos. They only read articles from one side. They only watch videos from one side. And what happens is they get information and facts that support their particular policy proposal or their policy preference. So if you think that we should stay shut down, you're probably reading and watching things that reinforce that view. And if you think that we should open up, you're probably reading and watching things that reinforce that view. And so what's going to happen is this is going to further divide the United States into camps. And that's going to be bad for the United States going forward. Something else that we're going to see is we're going to see a massive call for socialistic policies. Because so many people have lost their jobs, and it's not because of something they did, but because the government shut them down, there's going to be lots of people saying that the government should start sending people checks monthly, that the federal government should bail out states. And if that happens, what's going to occur is our national debt, which is already $25 trillion, is going to balloon. If our national debt goes up more and more, eventually someone's going to have to pay that bill in the form of higher taxes or less benefits. And that's likely going to be you and your kids. And so we just can't give away money. It's, it's going to have to be paid at some point. So this has really become a lose-lose. Uh, what, we, what we have to do ourselves, what about you? What do you do? Well, first of all, you need to do what your parents say. If you're a minor, if you live in your parents' home, uh, whatever opinion you have on this issue, you need to follow your parents' lead. So if you think, man, this is a stupid lockdown and I should get out there and I'm going to go exercise my liberties, no. You're a minor, you're under the authority of your parents, and you need to follow your parents' lead. You need to allow your parents to set the, um, the response to this crisis. But something you can do is you can read a lot. You should be reading articles and watching videos from both sides of the issue. You should be Googling arguments for opening up America and arguments for keeping America shut down. You should be looking at the question of, is the shelter-in-place constitutional? And listen to people who are speaking on both sides of the issue. You are welcome as a citizen to contact your city council member, your mayor, your school board official. You're welcome to contact the governor's office or your congressman or your senator and let them know what you think and what you want to happen. You can post online your opinion, share articles, share videos. Let people know what you think about this so that you can shape public opinion, so that you can move the M the acceptable middle, in a direction that you agree with. Because remember, whatever the public opinion is on the issue, that's going to shape the response of the government. And if you want us to open up or you want us to stay shut down, you're going to have to speak out and share. But you want to do it with gentleness and respect. You don't want to disrespect people. You don't want to speak to them with contempt or malice. But instead, you want to engage people in conversation. Hey, here's some data I have. Here's some stuff I found. What do you think about that? Uh, finally, when the election comes around in 2020, some of you in our government classes are going to be able to vote. I recommend you, you vet your candidates, you look for people who share your views, and you send them to the city council, to the mayor's office, to the local assemblies, to the state assemblies, to the federal government's House of Representatives, to the Senate, to the presidency. This is going to be a big election. This election is going to be a referendum on our response to the COVID crisis. At the heart of it is the relationship between citizens and their government. This is a major social change, and America's never going to look the same. But one of the things we found is that when people peaceably assemble, when people speak out and assert their rights like the people did in the civil rights movement, it actually makes America much stronger and much better. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of division in the 1960s because of the civil rights movement. But looking back, it was a good thing. 
Because what it did was it reestablished the appropriate relationship between citizens and their government. Southern states don't own black citizens. Black citizens own the southern states. It's their legislature. It's their governor's office. It's their city council. The people are sovereign. And the government should only do what the people want it to do within the constitutional limits that the people have placed upon it, specifically the Bill of Rights. So I hope this has been stimulating to you. I hope this has given you a lot to think about. I have a, a couple assignments. I've already mentioned the sociology assignment, and you can find that a little bit earlier in the podcast. But for those of you who are in government, I'd like you to find online examples, examples of First Amendment violations. Now, you may think, you know what, I don't think they're First Amendment violations. I think that it's totally fine for the government to stop protesters or for YouTube to shut down speech or to shut down churches because it's keeping us safe. That, that's fine. But I want you to find examples where the government has ordered things or has taken actions that could be seen as a violation of the First Amendment because it's good to be sensitive to that. It's good to be sensitive to that. Number two, I want to hear from you. What do you think? Do you think America should open up or do you think America should stay closed? And why do you think that? I want you to share that as well. So if you're in government, you're going to send me a Word document. And in that Word document, you find me some examples of the First Amendment violations. That could be freedom of religion or freedom of the press or freedom of speech or freedom of assembly. Okay, any of those. And then also, what do you think? Do you think we should stay shut down or do you think we should be open? And why do you think that? I want you to send me that assignment, not this Monday coming up, but the, the, this Friday coming up. Okay, so I will send that out and remind as well. If you're in U.S. history, you don't have an assignment in addition to what you already have. You already had a bunch of assignments. But I hope if you're in U.S. history that this, this conversation about uh, rights and government and the civil rights movement, uh, I hope it's been encouraging you, stimulating you, making you think about things in a new way. And uh, if you have thoughts on the podcast, then just let me know. This is my first one, so it's a little bit long and I kind of rambled a little bit, but uh, I hope it's helpful. And uh, if you have something uh, that you would like to say or something that you agreed with or disagreed with or something you'd like me to see, just email me or send me a reminder. I'd love to hear what you think. And uh, I'll talk to you next time on the Spranktacular podcast.